Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachrin, the assistant editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books in Politics. Today I'm speaking with Matt Stuller about his book, Goliath, The Hundred-Year War Between Monopoly Power and Democracy, from Simon & Schuster. Matt is the director of research at the American Economic Liberties Project. An expert on monopoly power, Matt is one of the leading voices in the re-emergent antitrust movement. Matt, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. Hey, thanks for having me. So the first question I'd like to ask you is if you could just tell us a little bit about your background and how it is you got interested in, in this topic. Yeah, so I was a policy staffer in uh, working in Congress during the financial crisis in 2009 and 10. And I got, uh, I was, I'm a Democrat. I was sort of like, why did we screw that up so badly? And, uh, and I looked around and a lot of people thought that people, there was corruption was the problem, but people I knew weren't corrupt. They just made stupid decisions that were ended up bailing out banks and foreclosing on lots of people. And I was trying to figure out why, why did we make that choice? And so I did, I did some research and somebody, the one person who, who knew, who knew what was happening during the financial crisis, because the financial crisis was like this. Um, the whole banking system was collapsing and, and that nobody knew what was, what was going on. But there's this one person who was this old economist named uh, Jane Darista who told me, oh, this market's going to blow up. And then it did. And this other market's going to blow up. And then it did. And I said, how did you know all this? She said, oh, I worked for this guy in the 70s, 60s and 70s named Wright Patman, who was the chair of the banking committee. And he was like, don't take all these protections down because the thing will, system will blow up. And so she knew what, why the guardrails were there. And then when they were taken down, what would happen? And this guy, Wright Patman, um, she told me, told me about his life and told me that he had been thrown out of power in 1975. He's a Democrat, but he was, there was a rebellion among other Democrats. And, he, and then I learned later on that he had authored a very important antitrust law to constrain chain stores in the 1930s. And I thought, that's a, that's a really interesting story there of a, a life story of this guy who's sort of an extraordinary member of, of Congress. But in that story, he was in Congress from 1929 to 1976. That was kind of the rise of um, the New Deal and then kind of the end of the New Deal. And so I ended up seeing that there was this relationship, this deep fundamental relationship that I didn't know anything about. Nobody that I knew who was dealing with the crisis knew anything about. That was, um, there was this tradition that's that said that consolidated, concentrated economic power was a threat to democracy, whether that power was in the banking system or whether power is in industrial monopolies or communication monopolies, concentrated economic power is a political problem. And that was the, that was the missing ideology that, that we didn't have in during the financial crisis. And so we looked at the financial crisis as a technical set of problems in the banking system instead of what it was, which was a political crisis. So I was, I wanted to answer the question of like, why did we screw, why did we screw this up? And then not even really even notice that we screwed it up. And so I had to kind of go back and say, okay, well, we, we were missing this entire tradition and we had a, a wholly different tradition in our own heads. And so that, that led me to write a book, which was about this missing tradition. Uh, the base, you know, you, to understand Patman, you have to go back to the founding of corporate America in the 1890s, early 1900s. And then, run through both uh, Patman's life and the, the, the oligarchs that he took, he took on in the 20s and 30s 
the, this, the, the kind of reign of the New Deal society in the middle of the 20th century, and then why it collapsed, which was not, um, which had to do with both the right and changes on the right and the left. And then what happened afterwards, which was, you know, the rise of, of uh, you know, the, the Clinton, essentially the Clinton Democrats and the, uh, the rise of, of monopolies for sort of institutions like Walmart, but eventually dominant tech firms. And um, yeah, so that's, that's why I wrote the book. I wanted to understand that basic question. And I fell into this area um, where I found this incredible story that seemed to explain a lot of it. Sort of picking up on on something that you you mentioned towards the end there about you know the, the massing of corporate power in the eighteen nineties, uh, you know for our listeners what what happened at the end of the nineteenth century, uh, and and what is it about that period of time that maybe mirrors certain things going on today or uh, is of relevance to people thinking about politics today? It's a great question. So. The late 1890s, early 1900s was known as the Great Merger Movement. It was probably the most important merger movement in American history. So kind of after really kind of starting in the 1840s, but accelerating after the Civil War, you started to see this weird thing emerge, which was called the National Corporation um, or the corporations that stretched across state boundaries. Traditionally, the American mechanism for regulating the economy was to address was to have like state and local regulation. And it was pretty egalitarian in, in economically. I mean, there was important ways in which it wasn't, but, uh, but in terms of the, you know, we'd make sure that there was sort of small landholders. Um, and there was, there were pretty tight there were regulations on prices and usury and things like that, but it was all done at a state level. And when you started to see things like railroads and telegraphs, the, then corporations started to stretch across state boundaries. And over the course of, you know, 30, 40 years, there were a bunch of political fights about how to how to regulate and address that problem and and uh, kind of sustain the traditional American egalitarianism when you had the rise of corporate power. Because the traditional American egalitarianism was about fighting aristocracy and like political aristocracy, you know, the kings in Europe, right, which was there were kings in Europe in the 1890s. And this was a weird new form of aristocracy because it was through the the was private entities that were becoming, you know, robber, essentially robber barons. So in the 1890s, um, there were, uh, th- there were still like a lot of, of different companies, um, you know, thousands of iron companies and, and, you know, different, different firms that were, uh, that were fighting in the economy for dominance and JP Morgan, um, kind of after the Sherman, the, the Sherman act was passed in 1890, JP Morgan engineered a giant merger wave. And that started in um, with a big recession in 1893, and then 1896, 97, up until 1904, you saw the formation of of uh, you know they combined every basically every iron and steel firm into U.S. Steel. They you know they combined the electric industry into like GE and Westinghouse. Um, International Harvester was a roll up of farm equipment producers. Basically, what we think of as corporate America today or big business was formed in that period as a result of uh, of these these um, you know the, the the legal changes, and then the the emergence of Wall Street as a as a consolidating center of this economic power. What was the the reaction to this? Uh, you know, specifically, like how did you know someone like Teddy Roosevelt uh, respond to J.P. Morgan's actions, uh, and also sort of oh sorry, go. Well, there were a lot. I mean, there were a lot of um, 
there were a lot of different reactions to it. So there, there, there were people who thought on the left and right that uh, centralized corporate power was good. So Eugene Debs, for example, who ran for uh, president in 1912 and was a, was a socialist, he thought that monopolies were inevitable and, and efficient and they should just be taken over by the state. And that's what Teddy Roosevelt thought as well. Teddy Roosevelt, you know, is framed as a great trust buster. In fact, he was, he was not, um, that was not his point of view. He did not, he liked, he actually liked monopolies. He thought that monopolies were necessary and inevitable. Um, but what he didn't like was he wanted to be the boss. He was in many ways, he was like a, in many ways he was a little, he's a lot like Trump actually. He's a little, you know, much smarter and, um, uh, you know, not, I don't want to get into it, but he had a different personality, but he was like, he had a huge ego and he's like, I'm the boss. And when the, um, when JP Morgan challenged him with, uh, with a particular merger, he used the Sherman act, but it was really just, this is the Northern securities merger. It was a railroad merger in the Northwest. And that was, that was really just a way of saying, um, you know, J.P. Morgan, we're both aristocrats. You have to talk to me before you do these kinds of things. And after that suit, he cut a deal with J.P. Morgan and I kind of never interfere with a J.P. Morgan firm. Um, and uh, but so what he wanted was to have the government control monopolies it was so very similar to, to Eugene Debs. And it was the sort of the intellectual foundation for what Mussolini did later, not the violent pieces, but just how do you organize an industrial society in that philosophy by Teddy Roosevelt was, well, you consolidate and you effectively have, um, big business and labor and the government bargain with each other and uh, small business doesn't matter. Monopolies are good. His great opponent was Woodrow Wilson. And this is the election of 1912 where you had Teddy Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, William Howard Taft and Eugene Debs. And in the, the fulcrum of that election was the question of big business. And that was really the first, maybe the only election that was run. And the, the main question was, what do we do about big business? And Woodrow Wilson was heavily influenced by Louis Brandeis, uh, who was a, an important legal scholar known as the people's lawyer um, and uh, eventually a Supreme Court justice. And he, um, uh, William Jennings Bryan was also important, a kind of the, the you know, the great, a populist, uh, great populist from Nebraska. And the, the Woodrow Wilson came in and said, I'm, I'm going to use my administration to attack monopolies, which for the first 18 months of his administration, he did. It was a very aggressive, uh, passed the Federal Trade Commission Act, the Clayton Act, the Federal Reserve Act, banned child labor. Uh, passed the Shipping Act, like just did a lot of different things to constrain the power of big business and big, you know, kind of would have would have done the New Deal in uh, if he had continued. Um, but then World War One started, and so that that's really like the 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 great merger movement that kind of ended in 1904 when when Teddy Roosevelt was was president. Um, it spurred this giant political debate about what do we do. Um, what do we do with these institutions that are bigger than democracy, in a sense? And the, um, you know, there were a bunch of arguments. A lot of it had to do with, with fights over railroad regulation and antitrust. And ultimately what we did was um, created a, uh, a framework by which we would sort of 
make sure that big business wasn't too powerful. Force com- they would be big big companies, but they would be forced to compete, and there would be rules and reg- public utility regulations on network systems like AT and T or or telegraphs and railroads, and kind of like pu- make sure that that you could pr- protect and preserve uh, a, a democratic society and have something close to what what they used to call an industrial democracy, and that was kind of the fight. Those were the fights from like the early 1900s when corporate America was formed up until the New Deal in the 1930s when that they essentially we built a middle class society. Uh, you, you mentioned Louis Brandeis's influence, and I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about Brandeis's you know views and his critique of of bigness and the sort of influence that his ideas had on America in this time period. Yeah, so Brandeis had, I mean, he's a, a scholar, did an Im, Im, impressive work in everything from free speech to privacy to, to race, but he, you know, he was known as an antitrust and labor lawyer. And his view was, um, his view was that we, the point of, a, of commerce is to protect, I mean, this is, you know, very, um, uh, Old, old fashioned, but to protect manhood, right? To protect and promote man. They used to talk about manliness and honor and things like that. And um, so, you know, that's not, uh, don't talk about manhood right now, these days anymore because that's, you know, sexist. Just, just, that's just, the way they talked in, in the 19-teens. But it, the idea there is that, you know, you want to have uh, a, a free society where people can, um, can cultivate themselves and be free thinking and make decisions to um, promote their own personal development, the development of their communities. And that meant that they had to be able to work in an economy where they could sell their labor for a fair price, where they could um, innovate, where they could tinker, where they had responsibility um, because it wasn't just about the things that they wanted. It wasn't, it wasn't, um, uh, it wasn't libertine. It wasn't you can do anything. It was that you have liberty, which means you have both agency but also responsibility. And so he experimented with a wide variety of legal uh, arrangements, including cooperatives, which sometimes worked and sometimes didn't, um, unions, uh, competitive markets, public utility rules. But the the idea was to make sure, was to, was to build a, an industrial democracy, a way that people could cultivate themselves and not be bossed around by some distant master. He was, he was uh, probably the best encapsulation of his philosophy was in, he wrote a, um, Woodrow Wilson's, what was called the New Freedom Agenda and published it in a book called Other People's Money. It was actually a series of essays for The Atlantic and then it turned into a book. But it was about how um, how kind of distant masters on Wall Street controlled the commerce of the nation and w- why that was a problem. And he went over the different ways that they did it. And the the basic goal of political um, of, of policy in political economy was to make sure that 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 didn't happen that people were in charge of their own uh, political econ- like their their own communities and their own um, elements of commerce and this is a very complicated and difficult thing to do uh, but that was his basic philosophy it was taking the arguments that populists in the 1880s and 90s in the in and merchants in that time had made and trying to sort of recraft them into something that could be worked in the, in the, um, 
in the 20th century. A lot of it was antitrust law, but not all of it. And, uh, and really kind of updating that traditional American egalitarian anti-aristocratic sentiment and tradition for the industrial age. I'm leaving out a lot of things like notably, you know, the critique of what I've been saying so far is well, what about race and what about, you know, gender and what, you know, all of those things are, are part of the story, but I'm giving you the, the, the way that they would characterize the debates at the time. And, you know, Brandeis at this point in time, I, I, I'm not sure exactly when he is appointed to the Supreme court. I think that's Wilson appoints him. Um, and, you know, the 20s are obviously known as like a, a boom time period and then ending in the crash. So, you know, obviously there's a, uh, you know, in an effort to just uh, expedite uh, because, you know, hard to talk about 100 years of history in, in one quick conversation. But, you know, what sort of happened in this period of time, you know, leading to FDR taking power and the kind of reshaping of corporate power uh, under this period of time and, you know, also, um you know, what happens with uh, with Andrew Mellon and, and Wright Patman, who you, you mentioned uh, mentioned at the beginning of the conversation? Right. So so World War One start World War One kind of interrupts the Woodrow Wilson's attempt to reform U.S. commercial systems. And then in the 20s, the oligarchs kind of strike back. So the big business is basically lost. They lost the fight. And. You know, it's they they then come back in the 1920s, and it's not it's not J.P. Morgan. He dies. His son is powerful, but it's this it's a, a set of of um, financial actors. It's the Duponts, the Rockefellers, the Morgans, and Andrew Mellon. And Andrew Mellon is learned from J.P. Morgan. He's a Pittsburgh industrialist. In 1921 to 1932, he's the Secretary of the Treasury and also owns some of the most powerful companies in the country, including Gulf Oil, which is now Chevron, and uh, Alcoa, which is an aluminum company, the uh, Union Trust, and lots and lots of banks. But he has this uh, public portfolio as the Secretary of the Treasury, which means he's also at that time the chair of the Federal Reserve. So he's this immensely powerful guy, and he's using his, pu- his public portfolio to get business for his, for his own companies. And... Uh, and Wright Patton gets elected in 1929 from a very rural district in, in Texas. It's Texarkana. And they start to fight over veterans funding because Be- Mellon wants money to go to the banks and um, Patman wants money to go to World War I veterans. And so they're fighting over that. And it's not a big deal at first, but then the de- 29, because the economy is doing great, then the economy crashes because of de- basically the economy, the financial system wasn't regulated and, um, and the, there was too much inequality. And over the course of the next several years, the, uh, the, that fight over whether veterans are going to get money becomes just found, it becomes a very important uh, conflict because there are lots of veterans. It was 10 million people or a lot, lot of people fought in World War I and they need money because it's a depression. And so um, eventually Mellon, and there's a huge protest that kind of like called the bonus army. Eventually um, Patman impeaches Mellon, Hoover, uh, or files articles of impeachment, Hoover fires him, so sends him to England. And then over the next, 
I don't know, 10 years or so, there's a systemic attack on Mellon's Mellon and his whole way of doing business. So they put Mellon on, on trial for, uh, so after the impeachment, they put him on trial for tax fraud. This is what FDR does. Then they break up his financial holding company. They break up his, um, uh, they break, they file anti antitrust suits against Alcoa. They break apart his banks through Glass-Steagall. They, they break apart, he owns some airlines. They break those apart. Like they, they wage this war on, and this is FDR and the New Deal, uh, New Dealers. Um, they, th that's my characterization of the New Deal is it's a war between the, what FDR called the informal economic government of the United States, which are these small group of guys and the public represented through their elected government and FDR wins, um, along with, you know, people like Patman and eventually, you know, the settlement of Mellon's, um, you know, he gets put on trial for tax fraud. He doesn't end up, uh, going to jail and he has to pay a fine. But mostly what he does, the deal that they cut was he would give his art collection and some money to build a building to the government to build a great museum. And that's why we have the National Gallery in D.C. So that was the resolution of that fight against Mellon as we get this, this, this great, this wonderful museum. Um, and then FDR can build um, the industrial capacity to uh, be the arsenal of democracy during World War II and ultimately a, um, a, a middle-class society. And even, you know, after FDR, it seems like under Eisenhower, the antitrust, there's still strong antitrust sentiment. Would you characterize the Eisenhower administration like that? Like, what was the state of the Republican Party? It clearly wasn't, you know, what the Republican Party was under Hoover and, and Mellon. Yeah, I mean, they explicitly, like Hoover was... Um, you know, for the next 20 years, right, you could say a Democrat could get elected by just saying you don't want to elect another Herbert Hoover, right? So the Republicans moved away from that and said, we're not like Hoover um, that, that destroyed your livelihood. And so when Eisenhower came out of the, he was the, the general, commanding general in Europe during World War II, and he comes out and they don't know if he's a Democrat or Republican and both parties try to entice him. His He comes from Kansas. His parents... I think his dad runs a dry goods store, independent merchant, and he hates monopolies. One of the things he did in Europe is he took apart IG Farben, which is the German, great in German chemical company that was considered like an important ally of the Nazi regime. And they broke that up. And so he decides to become a Republican and he gets elected and he is, you know, he's more conservative in certain ways, but he is a new dealer. Um, he supports social security um, he supports uh, antitrust. You know, he's a very aggressive antitrust regime, sues all of the big companies, um, continues the lawsuits from the Truman administration. Um, you know, he, he regulates the banks. He, there's, there's a, um, it, he's not, he's not a, he had broke from the traditional kind of um, Hoover type of, of um, oligarch friendly model. And, you know, there are quotes where he he talks about this, but it was not a and Nixon, too. I mean, Nixon was a corrupt New Dealer, but he wasn't an all like he he thought, you know, he filed a, a lawsuit, an interest lawsuit against IBM and thought, I'm going to I'm going to get some credit for this. Like the idea in American politics is 
the government is there to constrain and contain big business. And that's just the way that everybody thought. It wasn't even a, it wasn't like there was, I mean, sure, the Republicans were like usually friendlier to business, but it wasn't in the sense of like, oh yeah, you know, Citibank should be running the world. Like people thought banks were dangerous. Like they thought the stock market was dangerous. They thought that America was, obviously American capitalism meant equality. Like these were very basic assumptions that people had. All of the ways that people think about the economy today you know, if you went back to the 1950s or 60s, people would think you're crazy, right? Like, no, Europe is the land of inequality, right? Um, they're the land of, of aristocracy and America is the land of equality and competition, right? I mean, th- this, is a, this is a common thing that you can go from the 1830s all the way to the, to the 1970s and hear this. And, and Eisenhower fits squarely in that tradition. Something that, that you discuss and. Uh, this is very interesting was that there was a sort of a, a flowering of maybe this is the wrong description, but a flowering of pro big business intellectuals on the left, uh, people like like Richard Hofstadter. Um, and I don't necessarily know if John Kenneth Galbraith fits in that bucket. But can you talk about these sort of intellectuals on the left and what they kind of did to maybe move away from this antitrust uh, position? Yeah, the. So the foundation of big business, there were socialists did not like the the populist idea of taking apart these these large firms. Socialists really did want to want to have a national like public ownership of of all business, and you know there were there were some alliances there, but it was you know the socialist regime or the socialist philosophy was from was it was it was a European framework, and because Europeans you know in the U.S. in the nineteenth century. The largest institution after the U.S. military was Pennsylvania Railroad. It was not a very government-heavy society. In actually, I think the Pennsylvania Railroad might have been bigger than the U.S. military at certain points. But um, you know, the the post office was our biggest institution, governing institution. It was a big institution, but it was you know, the, in in Europe you had these kingdoms, right? So there was there was the idea of like having the state controlling large swaths of the economy and owning it directly was not weird. And there was a tradition there, but it wasn't a tradition here. So socialism coming in, this sort of German-influenced socialism didn't really fit. But, you know, people um, like, you know, Thurston Veblen was a very important, you know, he brought that idea uh, to the United States. And um, what's his name? Uh, Walter Lippmann, another very important kind of bringing this to the U.S. And... um, the founders of the new republic like they brought this idea of and this was this influence very heavily influenced teddy roosevelt the the second generation of that and this is like the consumer rights movement very sort of socialist influence the second generation was john kenneth galbraith was an economist a canadian american economist and richard hofstetter a great historian but also like C. Wright Mills, who was a sociologist from the you know the new left, coined the term the new left, the counterculture types, they came in and they said, you know, big big business is fine. The issue is not, um, and small business they thought was terrible. They hated small businessmen because they thought that um, you know these were the McCarthy fascist types, the car dealers, um, and. So they opposed the idea of having, of like promoting small business and they liked, you know, chain stores, for example. It was a big, important 1952 antitrust suit against A&P 
and John Kenneth Galbraith and Richard Hofstadter, you know, made fun of it because they thought, oh, like it's, you want to go to a dingy, like rural independent store versus like a clean, modern, you know, A&P uh, market. And, and, and that was that idea that efficiency, that what we want are big, powerful institutions that are just efficient, uh, owned by the state was, was how the left uh, parts of the left, not the whole left, but parts of the left understood what the New Deal was. Um, Richard Hofstadter didn't, you know, he didn't, he hated uh, FDR. So there was a, there was a kind of, there was a deep anti-populist elitist strain to it. And they became, you know, they were very influential for, for the baby boomers who came of age in the 60s and 70s and formed the backbone of the consumer rights movement, which then worked with you know, the other the other group that emerged in the 50s was the free market, uh, the Chicago School free markets, um, uh, the free uh, free market study. And this was this was Milton Friedman, Robert Bork, George Stigler. Aaron Director was the this mysterious figure that I profiled who, like, put it all together. And they uh, they built a set of tools. They agreed that big business was more efficient and they hated antitrust. They just didn't want it to be owned or run by the state. They wanted it to just generate cash instead of um, instead of sort of making big social decisions through public publicly owned corporate corporations. So they built a set of tools that legal tools that you could use to get rid of the traditional public utility rules on large corporations or, or network systems. Uh, they, they wanted to eliminate antitrust and over the course of the like 1960s and 1970s and 1980s, these two groups made a debate in their own parties that, you should get rid of antitrust. You should deregulate. Um, and there were different reasons for it, but it really was a left wing and a right wing, like the left and the right did it together. And by by the time Wright Patman was overthrown in 1975, you know, it was like he was the last of the populists. I mean, there were a couple others, Phil Hart, but they were sort of dying by, at that point. And this new group that came in, uh, the Watergate Babies in 74, and then the new right in 78, they did not know or care about populism. They thought it was outdated. They didn't like, actually, they didn't not, they did, it's not that they didn't care. They actively disliked populism. And they they were looking for solutions to the problems of like the, the New Deal systems were failing because, or were breaking down because they, they hadn't been updated. The regulations hadn't been updated in 20 years or 30 years. And so they looked to the Chicago school to address it. And they said, okay, all these constraints on capital, whether it's public utility rules or antitrust or banking regulations, the, we have to lift those because it's the constraints on capital that is causing all of the inflationary dynamics of the 1970s. And so that's what they did in the 1970s. And, um, you know, we are still kind of living in the world that they created. How do you, you know, sort of think about the characterization of this as like a shift to like neoliberalism, like, what do you think of that, that term? Um, do you think it's an accurate descriptor? Well, they call themselves neoliberals. I mean, on the, the, that was a term that was used in the 1936, um, discussion of Walter Lippmann's book, the good society. It was like a salon or something. And then I think that they liked to, you know, on the, the Chicago school types like to call themselves neoliberals. I think the socialists didn't, they just, Galbraith in 74 just came out and said, I'm a socialist. And there were a bunch of other socialists, but yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a fine term. I mean, when you say it, it's, 
kind of annoying. Like it sounds annoying. It sounds complicated, but, um, but it does describe, you know, a specific method of statecraft, which is what it is, which is to like, which is to use the power of the state, but not directly, but to do it through the veil of financial markets. And that is, that is the way that we organize things these days. So, you know, in, in 1980, Reagan is elected. What is, you know, what is this period like for, for antitrust? Like, you know, are, are there people that are advocating it on the left or is it just completely, is it sort of silence? Well, so it's not a left-right thing because there are Republicans. So Bill, Reagan comes in and he gives the antitrust division to a guy named Bill Baxter, who's a true believer, who, who says, it's not that they like eliminate the law. They don't repeal the law. They had debates about whether to repeal the law or not. And they, you know, several of them tried, but, uh, but they, they couldn't. And they decided that it was easier to change the philosophy by which we enforced. So their goal wasn't to say, so antitrust had traditionally been, and all of these regulatory tools were about constraining power and making sure that you had to compete uh, in a fair way and that you couldn't use your size or bulk to, to, um, gain unfair advantages. And then if you were, uh, if you were a network system, you were regulated so that you couldn't discriminate, um, by charging different prices to different groups. And, uh, what they argued, what these guys argued was, well, that's not the way that we should handle antitrust. Um, the goal of antitrust shouldn't be to address power asymmetries to promote rivalry, the goal of antitrust should be to promote efficiency. And that idea of, well, we don't care if there are 10 companies or one company, as long as it's efficient, was a revolution. It was an intellectual revolution. And the way that they, that the way that they calculated efficiency was through these, this group of people, the moral reformers that we call economists. And economists would use these very complicated models, neoclassical models with freighted political assumptions to say, this action is efficient, therefore it's legal and, and, uh, and it might have traditionally been illegal, you know, bundling together a vital product with another product that you don't need. They, um, that's called tying. It's tradition. It's traditionally illegal, but when the economist comes and says, oh, well, you know, this looks efficient to me, then they were just, they would say, well, since it's the law, the antitrust law is based on efficiency. They read economics into the statute, even though it wasn't there and got rid of most antitrust enforcement around mergers. And so when Reagan comes in and he puts people at the federal trade commission and the antitrust division, which are the two main enforcers, they stop enforcing merger law. Reagan also puts people at the federal, at the banking and securities regulators that don't enforce that law, those laws either. So the net result is there's massive amounts of capital that's flowing into the financial markets to foster mergers and there's no antitrust enforcement to stop it. So you have huge, a huge merger wave in the eighties and the roll up of industries, you know, everything from media to chain stores, you know, the, to, um, manufacturing and, uh, and that's when, then Reagan puts a bunch of judges on the court. Like he actually put Robert Bork on the DC circuit court and they, um, they changed their, the interpretation of the law to be consistent with what the Chicago school sought. Right. So they didn't do it through statutory changes. 
But there wasn't opposition from the left. There was opposition from the left to Reagan's attacks on labor unions. But there wasn't really opposition to the left to Reagan's attack on antitrust. Howard Metzenbaum, who's a senator from Ohio, was unhappy about it. And there were some Republicans who were unhappy, but there were some complaints about it. But by and large, the major choices around the economy, which was like relaxing antitrust enforcement and then deregulating the airlines, deregulating shipping, deregulating banking, deregulating um, uh, trucking and railroads, all of those were sort of bipartisan decisions. They were like Jimmy Carter started it, not the antitrust thing, but but they, well, he actually did roll back certain important pieces of antitrust, but not all of it. Um, and Reagan kind of accelerated it, but it was done by both parties. And what's interesting is that in the 1990s, when Bill Clinton took over, it's not like the Democrats came in and said, now we're finally, we're going to bring back antitrust. Like what happened is Bill Clinton solidified the, just like Eisenhower sort of solidified the New Deal by being the Republican that was going to operate as a New Dealer. And that made it a bipartisan consensus. Bill Clinton did that for the Reagan era. And so he solidified what Reagan had done by, you know, continuing the same antitrust policies, but Reagan globalized it. So he, he took it, you know, with NAFTA and with China PNTR and the World Trade Organization, he actually like, and then some things in the defense sector, he actually did, took, took what Reagan did and kind of doubled down on it. You know, I, I think, you know, something that you, you, you discuss later, um, is just like this this issue of too big to fail, and you know, obviously, I think that you, you talk about this a little bit at the beginning, but you know, to what extent would you know were these banking crises that happened in two thousand seven, two thousand eight, a result of actions taken in this period of time by too big to fail banks? Yeah, or, yeah. I mean, every financial crisis is caused by the same thing, which is gambling with other people's money. Right. It's just like really simple. And the, the details are always different and complex, but that's the gist of it. Um, this last financial crisis in 2008, 9, 10, the banks that were doing the lending and the gambling were just massive institutions that were too big. Uh, like if they had gone bankrupt, it would have been it, it, these are true. You know, it would have been impossible to sort of figure out who owed what. And it would have been a bunch of really arbitrary political decisions, which we ended up making anyway through bailouts. But it would have like it. These the institutions were just like they were just too big to um, to do anything except bail them out because we had to keep them going to keep credit flowing in the economy. We didn't have to bail them out the way that we did, and but but by that point they had become, you know both massive and also very like tightly coupled so that if one failed, a whole bunch of others would fail because they all, you know, owed each other, owed each other money. But that was the gist of it. Um, you do have these institutions that are so big and it's not just banks. Um, at this point, you know, Amazon is too big to fail. Like Delta Airways is too big to fail. Like they're, they're institutions that we just cannot let go bankrupt because their functioning is so important to our society. And what, what these firms have done is they've, you know, because of our policies, um, our regulatory policies, because, you know, they, these firms have wormed their way in as key infrastructure providers. And they're so big that, you know, you can't let them go under. So they have, like they have the ability to 
they have leverage and bargaining power because they can say, well, what are you going to do? You need us and you can't let us go under. Um, that wasn't true. You know, when you have a, a, an airline that controls 2% of the market versus an airline that controls 20% of the market, you can let that 2% of the market go bankrupt. And so there, there is that disciplining mechanism, but we've allowed the consolidation of power so that you can't actually let these firms go bankrupt. And it's very weird. And it's, it's like a very, it's frustrating the left in a lot of ways, but it's also frustrating the right because the right sees these institutions as kind of parastate institutions. They're like quasi governments at this point, whereas the left is like unhappy for slightly different reasons, but both sides are like, there's too much concentrated power here. Right. I, you know, sort of picking up on what you're, you're talking about at the end there about, you know, the right increasingly being frustrated by, you know, these massive companies like Amazon and Google, like, you know, sort of to, to bring it up to date, like what is the sort of the current state of, of the antitrust debate? Um, you know, the, you know, maybe like, I feel like a lot of the companies that get focused on the most are, like Amazon, Google, Meta, or, or Facebook, um, and you know the sort of critiques from the left uh, versus critiques from the right, where they really will focus on these companies, maybe less from an antitrust point of view, but more so from like a platforming point of view, at Section Two Hundred and Thirty and stuff like that. So, um, you know, what, yeah, what's the sort of the current state of antitrust, and you know, maybe also if you could sort of uh, going off that, like, what do you think, you know, like, what do you think we should do about it? Um, and yeah. so you're saying, what is the state of antitrust on the right, on the left and in the right? Because I, I know that they, you know, it seems like the, the right is, um, you know, embracing, uh, antitrust. I like, it seems like antitrust has been something that the left took up, uh, started to take up, a, you know, a, a bit more in around 2010, 2011, um, you know, and various, various, you know, people like you or, or Lena Khan or, or others, um, more left-leaning, but then now there are people on voices on the right that are advocating for some form of antitrust. Um, you know, maybe that's not your perception, but I was wondering if you, what you sort of see there. Right. So since, um, the early 2010s, there's been an increasing, increasingly vocal effort on the left to bring back traditional Brandeisian populist ideas of how to constrain corporate power. We call ourselves the brand, a Brandeisian movement. And we have in the Biden administration, so it was a disaster in the Obama administration, but in the Biden administration, the head of the Federal Trade Commission is a woman named Lena Khan, who was a very important thinker and writer, particularly focused on Amazon. Her, scholar, her scholarly work is on Amazon. And then at the Department of Justice Antitrust Division, it's a guy named Jonathan Cantor, who's a longtime lawyer that did a lot to try to constrain uh, big tech. He was a corporate lawyer, but um, on the sort of part of our movement too, because this is the fight within corporate, the corporate world. And there's a lot of interesting things going on right now within in the agencies. We also have Rohit Chopra at the Consumer Protection, Financial Protection Bureau, who thinks about co competition a lot. I mean, it's, it's sort of spreading across the government. The Biden administration has put out an executive order saying that competition is important government-wide. So you're seeing things like, the agriculture department is starting to do things about concentration in the poultry industry and the department of transportation is trying to like basically recently forced Tesla to open up its charging stations to all, uh, to, to any electric car, but interrupt that's an interoperability mandate. So there's this half stuff happening all over the place. It's not enough. There's not enough of us yet, but, uh, but you're seeing a, a pretty dramatic initial shift in policymaking on the right. 
you have anti-monopolists too. The probably the most uh, hated but famous one would be Josh Hawley, who wrote a book called The Tyranny of Big Tech, which is basically an argument about corporate monopolies. Um, but you have, you know, there are a bunch of others. Ken Buck in the House worked, you know, moved some antitrust bills through the House Antitrust Subcommittee. He's a Republican from Colorado. And, you, you know, there's, there's a bunch of like, but it, the, the right is a jumble. They're trying to figure out what they're, um, how to think about monopoly power because they got a bunch of libertarians and they got a bunch of people who don't want to touch corporate power at all. And that's just instinctive. And all of their institutions are about not touching corporate power, but their voters really hate corporate power. So that's what's interesting. It's like the Democratic establishment is more anti-monopoly than the Republican establishment, but Democratic voters don't care as much. Republican voters are just hate corporate power. So it's like a jumble and it's incoherent. And they, so like, I don't know who's going to get elected in this coming election, but over the next couple of years, I think the right is going to start fleshing out what they think about monopoly and antitrust. I mean, they, they are not like in, there's like this weird barbell thing where like the Republicans, some of the Republicans are the most adamant people around protecting big corporations. And then some of the Republicans are the most aggressive in going after them. And the Democrats kind of sit in the middle. So like the strongest antitrust case against Google, for example, is in Texas, which is the AG is Ken Paxton. He's considered very far right. And then, you know, the, the president who brought the first federal monopolization claim in 20 years, um, was Donald Trump in 2020. He brought an antitrust case against Google, right? Which is like, they had not, DOJ had not filed a section two claim since 1998 against Microsoft, not under the Bush administration and not under the Obama administration. Just to tell you how bad it was, the, there's a guy named Carl Shapiro who ran economics under the DOJ antitrust division under Obama. And he wrote a paper in 2017 saying, we would have loved to file uh, cases against monopolies, but there just weren't any. Um, which is a crazy to be like, there weren't any monopolies in the economy. Um, and, but then Trump revives, starts to revive the antitrust division. And, you know, Trump is not a coherent policy thinker, right? So he's just got like a bunch of randos in his administration and they, you know, if the guy who happens to want to pull the lever in that area wants to pull the lever, then they pull the lever, right? And most of them are corrupt. Some of them are creative and corrupt. Some of them are, you know, and so it was just sort of random. And that's like the way that the Republican party is on this stuff. They're not opposed. Like if you talk to a Republican, they wouldn't necessarily be opposed to doing things about corporate power. Some of them are very adamant in favor of doing it. And, you know, I guess just to sort of uh, finish things off, you know, if you have a sort of a sense of where you think things are going, what you hope you know, what your sort of hopes are for, for, for the antitrust movement and also, you know, if, you know, what you're working on today, uh, any major projects. I know that you, that you also blog too. So, you know, yeah. I mean, I just, you know, I, I think we're, we're on track, you know, we're, we're addressing corporate power. I think it's, you know, it'd be nice to get Congress to start to move on, on strengthening antitrust law. There's a lot of action at the state level. So it'd be good. New York is, is like, will probably strengthen its antitrust law in the next year, few years. Um, there's, uh, the, you know, fundamentally what I'd like to see is for, like, I believe that concentrated corporate power, firms like Google and Facebook and, you know, United Healthcare and whatever, these are the main threat that we face to our, uh, to our democracy and our free society. And I really believe that. 
And I think that these firms are as dangerous as rigging elections, if not more so, because they prevent our government from functioning. And what's the point of electing people if nothing changes? So what I want to see is the way that that Democrats think about like racism and they just have this intuitive, like just visceral, just like reaction to it, where it's they understand it's a serious moral problem. I want them to have that same reaction to concentrated corporate power. I want it to be just like part of the DNA of what it means to be an American, to have that reaction, because that is the way that it used to be. And that is what you need to actually constrain uh, to live in a free society. You need to have a public that wants to be in a free society and that recognizes the threat of a free society in the form of, of uh, economic concentrations of power. And are you, are you working on any, any new books, anything else, anything? I mean, I run a, I write a newsletter called big, uh, which it's a Substack. You can find me. Uh, you can just Google my name and you'll find it. Uh, I am probably not going to be writing a book for until the end of the Biden administration, at least um, because they're, you know, these are the people that are in power are uh, their allies. And I want to write about what they're doing. And I want to like observe it in real time. I don't want to spend years in the archives right now, uh, but I will get to that eventually. Well, Matt, thank you so much for being on the New Books Network. It was great talking to you. Uh, uh, Listeners can find a link to the book in the show notes. I highly recommend it. Not only is the book interesting, but it's also uh, easy to read. And, And yeah, thank you so much. Hey, thanks for having me. Of course.